Good morning. My name is Art Cash. I'm an elder pastor here at River Oaks, and I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. We're glad that you are here. We're continuing our, our journey through the Gospel of Luke today. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. So about a year ago, Chris, Patrick, Mitchell, and I, we had the, the privilege of attending a well-known preaching conference in Louisville, Kentucky. For the most part, we had a great time. Many of the sessions and the sermons, they were encouraging, thought-provoking, although one of the speakers stood out to all four of us for the wrong reason. Now, I specifically remember his teaching on perhaps the most disturbing chapter in all the Bible, Judges 19. This teacher was clear. He, he was passionate. He was engaging. He was persuasive. He, he confronted us with a portrayal of sin that I will never forget. At one point, Chris leans over to me in the middle of this and goes, I hate sin. So I know it was, it was impacting him as well. So our expectations, they're, they're sky high as, as he's getting to the final third of his sermon. If you've been at River Oaks for any amount of time, you know what we were waiting for. How will this message point us to Christ? How will we see Jesus Christ as the perfect judge, the perfect husband, the perfect man, since every man in Judges 19 is despicable? Well, Jesus Christ never showed up in his sermon. And his application was this. Don't be a victim. Don't be a perpetrator. Don't be a bystander. That's it. That's all. No Jesus. I thought, there, there's got to be some mistake here. I'm at a preaching conference. <laughs> Give me Jesus. But, but no, we, we heard another sermon by him on, on Samson, and it was also completely devoid of Jesus Christ. This, this was impacting me spiritually. I didn't realize that it was manifesting itself physically. As during the second sermon, I'm starting to kind of curl up into a, a, a ball. And Chris is having, are you okay? I'm like, just give me some Jesus. <laughs> well, thankfully, Lord willing, we'll have no Christless preaching today or ever from the pulpit at River Oaks. Amen. And thankfully, we see no Christless preaching from John the Baptist in Luke 3. Here is a man who fearlessly preaches the good news. He clearly points us to Jesus Christ, the mighty one who's coming. And that's our main idea this morning. Preaching the good news. We see John preach the good news. When, when any elder or preacher or teacher is preaching the good news, it heightens our expectations. It's going to lead to confrontation. And it always gives us a clear revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want you to look for this theme as we read the passage, Luke 3, 15 through 22. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless the reading and and preaching of your word. Father, it is only by your grace that Christ is preached in this church. So we praise your name for it. Father, I pray that you you would raise my brother and sister's expectations this morning to be fed from your word, to have their sin confronted, and to be pointed to the only hope that we have, which is in your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. So you can see how the the passage progresses the expectation both of the people and of John. In verses 15 through 18, they're looking for a Messiah. We see the confrontation in 19 and 20 that even though Herod is in power, John publicly confronts his immorality. We see the revelation of Jesus in verses 21 and 22. Following Jesus' baptism, the Trinity gives us such a clear look at who Jesus really is, the beloved Son of God. So here's John the Baptist, a unique man, no doubt, with a unique message. He's out in the wilderness. He's preaching repentance and baptism. No one could ever accuse John of playing to the crowd or being a people pleaser. Rather, the Spirit is on John to pierce the hearts of the people with a warning, a warning of impending judgment and the hope of salvation. Crowds are flocking to hear this message. Even tax collectors, soldiers, they're repenting. They're changing their ways as a result of John's preaching. Why? I mean, John's not the first man or the last man to preach judgment, to preach salvation. Why are they flocking to to hear him? Well, I want you to recall that from birth, this man was filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke 1, 15. He's one preaching in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will make ready for the Lord a people prepared, Luke 1, 17. In other words, John's filled with the Holy Spirit John is preaching the good news with power. He is getting the people ready for something. He is raising their expectations, and the people sense it. They know that something is coming. Look look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John's spirit anointed preaching it is, is affecting the crowds. It's leading to heightened expectation. It's become a spectacle, so much so that they're asking themselves this question, could John be the Christ? Well, John knows something that the crowds don't know. He knows his message and his baptism are incomplete. They're inferior. Turn from sin and change your ways. There's a mighty one coming. There's a mighty one coming, and he will defeat your sin. 
He will save you from the wrath to come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John gets the people's expectations even higher with what he says next. 16 and 17. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John answers the question on all of their hearts. I'm not who you're looking for. The one who is coming is mightier than me. The one coming is more worthy than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So that that statement is significant. If you think first century, how did people travel? They walked everywhere, okay, in their sandals, on these dusty, muddy, filthy roads. They walked everywhere. So the the tradition was that the the rabbis uh, would allow their students to serve them in all types of ways. But there was one thing that the students were not allowed to do, they wouldn't do, and that's untie the sandals of the rabbi because it was so disgusting. That was the act for a slave to do. That's a, that's a slave's work. So that's exactly why John says it. It's, it's striking. It's meant to grab our attention. Here's the greatest man ever born, according to Jesus, much more than a typical prophet, the man chosen by God to break his 400-year silence. Yet this man, this man is unworthy to do even the lowliest task for the mighty one coming. John says he's, he's less than a slave compared to Jesus. Think of this. Here's a man who has influence. He has followers. He has people ready to say he is the Messiah, yet he knows his role and his heart is humble. John says in John 3.30, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. How rare is that mindset? Where do you need the Spirit to cultivate that mindset for you? I want you to notice something critical about who is doing what at the end of verse 16. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So sometimes a part of a verse or a phrase is repeated often enough that it takes on a life of its own and eventually leads to confusion. Some Christians may wonder, have I been baptized by the Holy Spirit? How would I know? What, what does it look like? What does it mean? If you've ever wondered if you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, let me encourage you with this verse. Who is doing the baptizing here? Jesus. He's the baptizer. Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. Brother and sister, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment of your conversion, Jesus baptized you with his Holy Spirit. As soaked as John's followers are with the water coming up out of the Jordan, is your life soaked by, immersed in, saturated with the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm not in any way negating or taking away from you later experiences of the Spirit filling you, anointing you, 
empowering you. But this text brings us clarity on the gift Jesus gives every believer at his or her conversion. So why? Why is Jesus' baptism greater than John's? Because by the blood of Jesus through the cross, he fulfills the promises of old, Ezekiel 36, and I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you remember what Jesus was doing in John 14 and 16? He was spending most of that time trying to convince his disciples that he had to go. He actually needed to die so the Spirit would come in order to fulfill this exact covenant promise. So prior to Jesus, John the Baptist's message was incomplete. Repent. Be baptized and change. Jesus, who is mightier than John, says, I have come to give you a new heart and put my spirit in you so that you can believe, so that you can repent, so that you have hope for actual, real, true change. So I ask you, whose baptism is mightier? I mean, let's press this for a minute. I want your expectations sky high for this. Flip over to Romans 8. Okay, if you get uh, your, your print Bible, great. Flip over to Romans 8. If you got your phone, go there, but please silence all their notifications for me. Uh, I want your attention fully on this. Flip over to Romans 8. This, this may be the favorite chapter of the Bible for many in here. Just think of how it starts. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We, we typically think about this chapter through the lens of Jesus Christ, but I, I want you to think about the lens of what Jesus Christ gives you, what you see in, in this chapter. And when you see in Romans 8 that one of the main things that you have in Christ Jesus is his Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes you with the Spirit who sets you free, verse 2. The Spirit helps you walk not according to the flesh, verse 4. The Spirit sets our minds on God, on life and peace, verses 5 and 6. The Spirit indwells the believer and makes us belong to Christ, The Spirit gives us life. The Spirit helps us kill sin. The Spirit makes us sons of God, verse 14. The Spirit defeats slavery to fear, verse 15. I want that. The Spirit bears witness to us that we are children of God, verse 16. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, verse 26. The Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God, verse 27. Every one of these blessings comes from Jesus, the mighty one who baptizes you with his spirit. So whose baptism is greater? Jesus. His baptism is greater. Not only is this his baptism greater, his judgment is greater. And we get a hint of that at the end of verse 16. When, when John mentions fire, and fire in this passage, it represents judgment. We saw in verse 9 that every tree not bearing fruit will be thrown into the fire. We see it again in verse 17 where John describes fire as unquenchable, forever, never-ending, eternal. Look at verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The, the winnowing fork of the gospel, it, it unites and it divides. Once the harvest is, is thrown into the air by the judgment fork of Jesus, the wheat is separated from the chaff. The wheat is a picture of salvation, just like Jesus baptizing us with the Spirit. The believer is gathered to Jesus like wheat gathered in a barn. Jesus Christ rescuing sinners is good news. But that's only half of John's picture here. John preaches the whole counsel of God, which also includes the good news of unquenchable fire. So that, that strikes me as, as odd. Don't, don't we usually describe hell as bad news? Not good news. But Scripture corrects our thinking here. Look at verse 18. Right after, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. How in the world... Can the reality of an eternal hell, an unquenchable fire, be good news? But two reasons. One, if you are drawing breath and you are not a believer in Jesus, then the reality of hell is a warning you can still heed. And a warning that hell is real and you can escape it by placing your faith in Jesus is really good news. True warnings that you can listen and respond to are always good news. Now, maybe sometimes people preach hell with some kind of bombastic us versus them self-righteous tone. That is not what John is doing at all. Look, look at 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached exhortations and and, and preaching. He's exhorting the people. This tone is one of intense warning. It's strong encouragement. So I offer the same with not an ounce of judgment or self-righteousness. I am warning you. I am encouraging you. As one who was destined for hell until Jesus gathered me to himself, I'm warning you. We often talk about all that is to be gained by coming to Christ, and trust me, I, I want to stay there. That's where I want to camp out for, for the believer. Hear it. You gain it all. You have it all. But this, this text forces my hand. <laughs> We talk about all there is to be gained, but you have to know the opposite is true. Hear the warning that you have everything to lose by refusing to come to him. Please place your faith in Jesus today. So, so the second reason... That, that the judgment of unquenchable fire is good news is because earthly justice is limited and God's eternal justice is not. We, we, we know this. We get a, a sense of this when, 
it's been a while, but every few years, somebody uncovers a, a, a Nazi concentration camp guard who has spent 50, 60 plus years living their life in freedom. They, they find them, get convicted, and they spend two or three years of the rest of their life in a, in a comfortable prison. We know intuitively that's not right. We see not only the limits of earthly judgment, but also gross injustice against John in verses 19 and 20 as he publicly confronts Herod about his immorality. And do you think that that while John sat in prison waiting to be murdered by Herod, he might have been comforted by the good news of God's righteous, eternal judgment? I do. John is is unjustly imprisoned. Why? Well, let's see how preaching the good news then leads to confrontation. Look at verses 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The first thing I want you to see, John shifts his tone in preaching depending on the audience. It it is a coward who who pummels the sheep and hides from the wolves. John the Baptist here exhorts, he warns, he encourages the people, he pleads. But then look at that tone shift with, with Herod. He rebukes, he reproves, he severely reprimands, he chides, he shames Herod. Why is he calling him out like this? I mean, verse 19 tells us that, that John reproves him for all the evil things he's done. Not the least of which was breaking up two marriages, his own and his brother's, and taking his brother's wife as his own, who also happened to be his niece. So here we have a ruler who thinks nothing of divorce, of adultery, of incest. He's gross, and John calls him on it. Then Herod adds to all the wicked things he's done by unjustly locking John up to silence him. So think for a minute. What what is your own tendency when confronted with sin? Do, Do you eventually see that confrontation as a blessing from the Lord, or would you rather persist in ignoring the warning from the one trying to help you, ignoring the warning actually from the one who's trying to love you. Unlike us, Herod has the power to suppress the truth by locking it away with John in prison, but we have to understand the same seeds of Herod lurk in the heart of one who would ignore when your sin is confronted. It's, it's the same heart. So you could say that that is a personal confrontation of your sin, my sin. But with John, we, we just have to appreciate his boldness in his public confrontation of Herod. He raises our expectations with the promise of a mighty Messiah. He is clear on judgment. 
and salvation, but he doesn't stop there. He also teaches us how life should be lived in light of God's word. In fact, John puts speaking the truth above his own personal safety, even if that means confronting those in power over their wickedness. So John's preaching here reminds me of the traveling Methodist preacher, Peter Cartwright, in his famous interaction with Andrew Jackson in 1818. Here's the major general, the hero of the War of 1812, future president, walks into the church where Cartwright is preaching just as the preacher has has finished reading his, his verse for the sermon. And Cartwright feels someone kind of coming up behind him and pulling on his coattail saying, General Jackson is here. Loud enough for the entire church body to hear that. And as all eyes are turning towards the general, you hear Cartwright booming. Who is General Jackson? If he does not repent and have his soul converted, God will damn his soul to hell as quickly as any other unconverted pagan. I gotta, I gotta hand it to Cartwright. That's that's bold. We can we can chuckle at it. We can admire that boldness. But his story, it's it's safely distant. It's two hundred years ago. It's a quaint historical anecdote. What about something a little more timely? I mean, recently. John MacArthur wrote an open letter rebuking California Governor Gavin Newsom and calling him to repent of evil. MacArthur warned Newsom, your soul lies in grave eternal peril. Specifically for the evil of sponsoring billboards across America promoting California as an abortion sanctuary state. Well, that's bad enough. Newsom uses a Bible verse on these billboards as if somehow he could twist the meaning of love your neighbor as yourself to justify killing the innocent unborn. So was, I ask you, was, was Cartwright right to call Jackson to repent? Was MacArthur right? Is John the Baptist right? Aren't they all being... Political? I mean, sometimes preachers get accused of being too political. And I want to be the first to tell you, some absolutely are. If your pastors and elders are more interested in how you vote than how you're growing in Christ, you need to find another church. But that still doesn't answer the question of what John is doing confronting Herod. We still have to answer the question of an elder's responsibility in his preaching and his teaching. What should and should not be addressed from the pulpit? The answer is what it always is. What has to be preached from the pulpit is the text of Holy Scripture. And in verse 19, John the Baptist goes public with his rebuke of Herod. He goes political. Now, he, he wouldn't have called it that. He wouldn't have had a, a term for that. He's just publicly speaking truth. But even if they had said, John, you're getting too political, that wouldn't have stopped him. And he's doing this not for the sake, please hear me, of a man. He's not doing this for the sake of a political party. He's not partisan. 
He's doing this because the morality of God does not change no matter who you are. Be you tax collector, be you soldier, be you tetrarch. God's truth does not change. Be you Democrat, Republican, or governor of California. It doesn't change. Make no mistake, this this is Holy Spirit wrought preaching. We know this. We have seen this with John. He's humble. He's unflinching on God's righteous judgment and unrelenting on the good news of salvation. And he's bold. He's not afraid to call what is good, good, and what is evil, evil. He won't be silent. We can't be silent. Brothers and sisters, I'm just going to straight up tell you that humility and boldness is not only what you should want, but expect from your elders and preachers. We are fulfilling one of our roles as elders when we confront the sin in here and when we equip you to deal with the sin out there in the world in which you actually live. It's not an either or, it's a both and, and I'm convinced of it from Scripture. So as you think about nominating men to eldership over the coming weeks, one of the things you should consider is this. Who is already loving you by humbly confronting your personal sin and helping you navigate a world that is increasingly hostile to Christ. But we know, we know this is not enough. It's not enough to just confront your sin, my sin. It's not enough to just point out the corruption of the world. Think it, sometimes it's all we can do. All we can do is, is see our own sin. All we can see is the bleakness of a culture that is riddled with confusion and, and foolishness. We can also see the situation looks grim for John the Baptist. He's, he's locked up, his voice silenced, and eventually he's murdered for confronting Herod and Herodias Where can he expect hope? Where can we expect hope? Look at verse 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Our hope is not in a man. Our hope is not in political parties. Our hope is not in personal comfort or safety or anything else that we can see. But in these verses, for a minute, we get to see. We get to experience. We get to hear and see what is typically unheard and unseen. The heavens are peeled back and our hope becomes clear because God is kind. He opens the heavens and he reveals Jesus Christ to us as his beloved son. This passage so clearly reveals and lifts Christ up as our only true and lasting hope. So Kent Hughes, he he shares this story of Evie Hill, who was a senior pastor at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles for years. 
And he had an elderly woman in this church whom they called 1800 because nobody knew how old she really was. <laughs> well, she, she was a bit of a challenge for the unsuspecting preachers because she would sit on the front row and as soon as the preacher would get started, she would say, get him up, referring to Christ. After a little time, if she didn't think there was enough Christ in the sermon, she would shout a little louder, get him up. If the preacher did not get to Christ, he was in for a long, difficult day. <laughs> now, I would have loved to have had old 1800 with us at that preaching conference in Louisville. There was a man there that needed to hear, get him up. <laughs> Family, this is the priority. This is it. When you think about nominating an elder for this church... When you think about who's going to lead the church plant, who is it that consistently points you to Jesus Christ? There is nothing more important than placing Jesus at the center of all leading, teaching, and discipling in a church. Elders who, by the power of the Holy Spirit in their preaching and teaching, bring clarity, bring certainty about the life, death, resurrection, rule, and reign of Jesus Christ. This is, this is not just for elders. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm not an elder. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I will I'll pray for those guys because, man, there's a lot going on there. But this is for you. This is for every member of this church, every believer, every young person, every man, every woman. Please aspire, desire by the Spirit, to have Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, at the center of your life, of your marriage, of your parenting, of your job, of your relationship. And if he's not, pray. Pray to the one who can bring that. Pray to the one who baptized you into the Spirit. He will answer this prayer. Ask that he make you relentlessly focused on Jesus Christ, the revealed King of glory. So Luke, he's much more interested in this, in this theme of, of bringing John the Baptist's ministry to a close than he is keeping in, in order with time here because obviously Jesus is baptized before John is locked up. But I can bet you that what happened with John and Jesus on the banks of the Jordan gave hope to John while he's locked up in, in prison. Not just judgment, not just the hope of righteous judgment, but the hope that here's the Son of God. But we know, I know that you know, that suffering can do funny things to you. Suffering can make you doubt reality. Suffering can, can make you doubt what you know to be true about God. While you're sitting here right now, as a believer, you're, you're convinced of the Son of God. Two hours from now, suffering that you're not anticipating and, and doubt. So, so despite John not only being a witness to the baptism of Jesus, but an active participant, he still has doubts. Later, in chapter 7 of Luke, from prison, 
John sends some of his followers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is John asking this. Seriously, you're the one who dunked him. You saw the Holy Spirit. You heard the Father. So if John has doubts, we know that it will come to us. We know that suffering and doubt will come. So let's lock in our minds what what happened here. Let's lock in our hearts. And don't worry, if you forget this week, we'll remind ourselves again next week, and the next week, and the next week. So Jesus gets baptized. We know he doesn't need it. Why does he do it? Think of this glorious truth. Sinners were flocking to John the Baptist to get baptized. Jesus gets baptized with them in verse 21. That's the God I want to worship. Not the one who's standing off to the side going, good, good for you, sinners. I'll be over here if you need me. He gets baptized with them. John the Baptist starts his ministry with, you brood of vipers, repent. Jesus Christ starts his ministry by publicly identifying with the vipers that he came to save. It's not that John is wrong. By no means. But his message was incomplete. It's as if Luke wants us to see a a specific emphasis, Jesus, the clean one. He, he goes down into the waters, symbolically filled with the filth of sin. This foreshadows the cross, where for your sake, the mighty one who knew no sin became sin, immersed in every ounce and molecule of your sin. He took it on himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, immersed in, cleansed by his purity. That is awesome. It'd be awesome if it stopped there, but it doesn't. The the Trinity is fully revealed. The heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form as a dove. Objectively, visibly anointing Jesus to begin his ministry. The Father speaks, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here is divine testimony to the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is empowered and endorsed by God. Jesus has the authority and anointing of God. Lock this in. It is the plan of the Trinity to save rebels. Do you feel distant from Jesus this morning? Are you concerned about the the doubts that you know will come when suffering arrives? Please know this. Please see it. The God who created the universe sent his son to earth and he is being revealed to you right now. In his word. What could possibly be clearer? What could possibly be more loving than this? (laughs) The Father is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is showing you, testifying to you, that truly this man is the Son of God, and God wants you to be certain of it. Lock it in your heart and your mind by the power of the Spirit. So the question in the hearts of all the people from verse 15, who is the Christ? That question has been clearly answered. 
Jesus is the Christ. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. So today, behold, here is the Christ. Jesus, the beloved son of God. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of your spirit through your word where you clearly reveal your son. Father, you not only confront our sin and equip us to live in, in the world as it is, you give us the remedy. You give us the, the solution. You give us eternity in King Jesus Father, I pray specifically for, for anyone in here who, who does not know you, that you would, by your spirit, draw them to yourself. That today, the Son of God has been clearly revealed. Father, we thank you for the clarity and the truth of your word and the salvation of your Son. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.